Word of God together. And then there's opportunity for ministry. Uh, and a group have been praying before the service, um, and they will bring to us any words or pictures that they have had. And if you should be uh, uh, feeling that, you know, God is saying something specific to you, uh, then just pass it through. Who, who's doing the um, report back tonight? Maggie, right? So there's Maggie. <laughs> um, uh, if you want to get any messages through to her towards the end of the ministry time, if, if there's stuff to, to share with everybody. Okay, so that's the plan. Now, we've been following Nehemiah, and uh, we are up to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you have a Bible and wish to open it, that's where we are. Nehemiah chapter 5. When a famous admiral died, the navy wanted to lay on a grand ceremony in his honor. After two hours of speeches and hymns, it was suggested that they should end with a salute by cannon. That's not a cannon of the Church of England. but <laughs> Now that was when the organization of the ceremony threatened to run into trouble because for nobody on the four-person planning committee could seem to agree. They were arguing about the number of shots that they needed to fire. Well, I think, said the first one, that one shot would be perfect. It would be moving, symbolic, simple. No, 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 said the second captain. I think there should be two, because he won two great battles, so there should be one shot for both of those. No, 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 I think we should have three shots, said the third captain, as a mark of respect to the number of ships that he captained and commanded. And then the fourth captain uh, puffed quietly on his pipe until asked for his opinion. Well, actually, he said, there's no argument. We must fire four shots at the end of the ceremony to commemorate the late Admiral's four decorations for gallantry. In fact, I've already discussed the matter with the Queen, and it has been approved. Well, with that, the three other captains stormed out of the room, and one turned at the door and said, we wouldn't have bothered coming if we'd have known it was a foregone conclusion. <laughs> no, it really wasn't worth waiting for. <laughs> Oh, well, I liked it. <laughs> arguments, arguments. That's where we're at as we come to Nehemiah chapter 5. And arguments that threaten to derail the whole of the process so far. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me give you a brief update on uh, Nehemiah's cha Nehemiah chapter 1 to 4, if, uh, if you don't, don't know the story. Nehemiah has come back from exile because he heard they were rebuilding the temple, but they weren't rebuilding the wall and everything was threatened. He took a load of people back with him and they are rebuilding the wall. And we've been looking at his clever leadership uh, and his powerful leadership and the way that he gets everybody on board. And we've learned all sorts of things for the building of the kingdom of Christ because that's what Nehemiah, I believe, is in the Bible for. It shows us how to build the kingdom, and how to deal with the difficulties that come our way as we seek to do that. So last time in Nehemiah chapter 4, they had built it to half its height, and if you remember, there was so much rubble that the work had ceased and everyone was getting exhausted, uh, and then the opposition from outside started to creep in, and Nehemiah had to change things slightly, had to change the system, but he did, and so they carry on building the wall. Now we come to Nehemiah's most difficult challenge. 
much greater than that that he had faced so far from San Balat and Tobiah and, and, and all of the people in the surrounding uh, country. Because he had to face... <laughs> angry wives. <laughs> angry wives. Here it is, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Okay, so the challenge now, uh, joking apart, is the most difficult challenge so far because it comes from within. And you can deal much more easily as a, as a, as a leadership team in a church with opposition that is coming from outside. You can deal with that much more easily, generally, then you can deal with internal dissent. Where there's stuff going on in corners, in little power groups, where people are chuntering. If there is internal dissension in a church, it is very much more difficult to deal with, and it's difficult then for the kingdom of God to progress in that place. We have just sung. Christ's great commandment. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, love one another. We have just sung. So this is a very, very difficult situation. We all know on a personal level that if people who we have known and people who are our friends turn against us, it's very, very difficult to deal with. If, if a treasured friendship suddenly because of some issue that comes in, is no longer what it was, that's hard to deal with. The psalmist says this, uh, Psalm 41, and, and it comes up many times, actually, Proverbs and in the Psalms. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who has shared my bread, has turned against me. This is difficult. So, in a sense... Dissension that's internal to us, you know, our group of friends, our family, that, that is hard to deal with. Internal um, dissension on a church level is disastrous if it's allowed to progress and get out of hand. And, you know, I, I, I've seen it happen uh, in churches gladly, none that I've been involved in at a leadership level. But, but I have seen churches torn apart. And, and when it happens, everybody is so sure that they're right. And everybody is so sure that if they make a stand on a particular issue, that somehow that will sort the place out and God will be able to bless it. But that's not the promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture says make every effort to keep the unity of faith. And it's by that comes the blessing. Now, I'm not talking about situations where there's sort of some terrible, terrible issue that has to be dealt with in the church and, 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 and there does have to be perhaps a split because um, something is, is really against God's will and against God's commandments. But on a general level, it doesn't seem to me that's what split in church life is about and dissension in church life is about. It's much to, more to do with power. It's much more to do with personalities. It's to do with people wanting their own way 
and it's against God. Now, I do remember being in one church where this was happening. I I was a, a, a new Christian. And I remember thinking then, I think God will actually call me to account in this situation, not for whether I'm right or wrong or with the right or the wrong side, but whether or not I have been loyal to the leadership that he has put in place. Now, that doesn't mean to say you bury issues, as we will see as we go on in this situation. That's the last thing that Nehemiah does. But loyalty to the leadership that God has given is a very important thing. I know sometimes things break down totally and completely, and you you can't do do anything about it. And so be it, that's sad, and it saddens the heart of God, and it's often the fault of the leadership in that situation. But for Nehemiah, this internal dissension is now threatening to derail this massive project of rebuilding the wall, his most difficult challenge. And you think, well, how does it happen? Why is it that people start arguing when things are going well here? You know, they've built it halfway. They've had a bit of a problem with the rubble. They've sorted that out. Sanballat, Tobiah, the other people from outside have gone away. The rebellion has been put down from outside. And they're into a sort of smooth passage of time. And then they all start arguing. What's it about? Where does it come from? Well, that's clear, isn't it? (laughs) That's absolutely clear. You see, what's important here is that people love one another and that the work continues. What are they not doing? They're not loving one another, and the work is suffering. Is that God's idea? I don't think so. It comes from one place only, and we need to recognize it when it happens in our midst. That's not to say that we go storming around saying, you're from the devil. (laughs) That's not very helpful. Probably won't help resolve the argument. But we have to know what's going on. Just as Jesus knew what was going on when he was tempted in the wilderness, we need to be aware, he said last time, that anything, any good work that we are trying to do in the name of Jesus Christ will face opposition. And the devil knows that if he can get that opposition going from within, then he's won the battle. He's won the battle because he stops the work and he stops people loving one another. You know, if we're, not, if we're not loving one another and we're not doing the work of the kingdom, we might as well close the doors and go and join, I don't know, a swimming club or something. Because <laughs> what else are we for? The work of the devil. Okay, what's the story? What actually is going on here? Because there is a real issue. And it wouldn't have been right for Nehemiah in this situation to say, Stop all of your fuss and your chuntering and get on with the, get on with the wall. <laughs> That's exactly what I would say. <laughs> Probably. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but he doesn't because he knows actually that there is a real problem. The problem is this. There's been famine in the area for, for quite a number of years. It looks like, re- reading, reading the biblical account, they've been dealing on and off with famine over you know, a 70-year period. Not as bad as this, but 
but certainly it's hard to come by food. So, so there is a problem. Now, as well as there being famine, there has been a huge increase of numbers because of all of the people that Nehemiah has brought back with him. And as the work of the wall has continued, so others have come in to join. They've come back from exile. They've come from out of hiding in the surrounding areas. And so there are many more mouths to feed. And at the same time as that, there's a dirty great big wall to build. So a lot of the people that would have been in the, in the fields are busy doing that work. So there is a problem. There is a problem. There is an economic downturn. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> now, if that sounds familiar, you wait till you see the key players. In verse 1, it says this. Uh, we've already had the men and their wives raising a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Internal dissension. Verse 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Now these are the people who do not have land of their own and are dependent upon being able to buy food. And of course, the less food there is, the more the price goes up. Always, 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 the people at the bottom of the heap. You see, and this is what's alerting Nehemiah immediately, because this is a matter of social justice. There was a time when evangelical churches didn't care much about social justice. It happened during a fairly short period of the 20th century. Uh, where it came from, I don't know. It, it was because the great evangelical revivals of the past were always accompanied with people like Wilberforce and others who, when they saw an issue of social concern and injustice, wanted to do something about it. But we, we sort of slipped into a, a spiritual thing, saying, well, if it's not about the gospel, it doesn't matter. We don't need to feed the world. We simply need to get the gospel to them. Well, I don't know about you, but if I was hungry and someone came and preached to me, I'd say, give us a sandwich first, then I'll listen. <laughs> Put simply. <laughs> or even two sandwiches. <laughs> In the 1960s, there was a great Congress, National Evangelical Anglican Congress at Kiel, and the, 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 Angl the, the evangelicals repented of this attitude. And since then, evangelicals in all denominations have done much to right social wrong. And that is as it should be. And if we're walking close to Jesus, then we will be appalled when issues of injustice come our way. And, and that, that sort of spiritual thing within us is hurt. So the landless are the first set of players. Then there's another lot. Now these are those who do have property but have had to mortgage it. Uh, players of Monopoly will know all about that. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So these people have land, but they're having to get to, to, to mortgage it. And the people that they're mortgaging it from are in this situation making as much money as they can. So people are profiteering. Then there's a third group, and it gets worse. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay for the king's tax. That's the, you know, in, in Babylon. 
to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, this was a common practice, and it still goes on, doesn't it? in third world countries where people are forced to sell their children to raise money. And as you read on in the passage, you discover that there there are a group of people, the nobles and the officials, who have the money, and yes, they're lending it out, but they're lending it out at a huge rate of interest. I don't know if you are as appalled as I am at some of the adverts on the television for short-term loans. Have you ever looked at them? I mean, I'm not saying have you (laughs) because you need to to use one. But if you look at the small writing at the bottom and the levels of interest you pay if you don't pay that short-term loan back within whatever it is, 30 days, it's obscene. And they're allowed to advertise on our television sets. What's that about? And it's what's happening here. And it's all happening within the same community. And of course, as ever, (laughs) the fat cats are getting fatter. So this is a real problem. It's not just tittle-tattle going on in the background and people arguing about, I don't know, the wall committee or, <laughs> uh, or, or whatever. This is, this is a deep-rooted problem and probably a lot of these things have been simmering away for many, many years beforehand as well. Because Nehemiah comes into a situation that, that isn't new. There have been officials there for a long time. There have been people making money for a long time. And now in this situation, they are taking advantage of it. That's our church vision. And I don't know if there's any more important part of it than anything else, but it seems to me key to being of any use in in the world is to be a Christ-centered community. Now, this was before Jesus. But it's not a godly community, is it? Where people are treating each other like that. And this is where it speaks into our situation. Because although you may not be lending money to people, all of us in a a church community have a duty to make sure that we are not doing things that threaten to tear the place apart or threaten to disadvantage some bits or to make one group more powerful than another group because we aim to be a Christ-centered community. And Nehemiah can see that his community at the moment is not being God-centered because it's working against The law of God as written in the Bible, you know, lend not your money out to usury. Basically, don't charge interest, is what they were told, and they are. 
And they're doing it to the nth degree so that people's children are being sold as slaves. It's so depressing, I have to tell you, and you probably feel this, but as a church leader, you feel it very keenly. When, when you discover that somebody in your church fellowship has done something or said something to somebody else that is unfair and unjust and is resulting to that person feeling very hurt or possibly even leaving the church. Because what can you do? You do your best to sort it out. But the thing has been done. And it's another little chip away at that Christ-centered community. It's another little go, fueled by the devil, at the work of the kingdom. It's another little thing that just weakens something that should be strong and vibrant and growing and loving and changing the world. I often quote Bill Hybels, the local church is the hope of the world. Not if we're rubbish to each other. <laughs> I heard a lovely thing, actually, this week. <laughs> Just to cheer you all up, in case you're all thinking, oh dear, is he getting at me about something? <laughs> well, if the cap fits. <laughs> oh yes, the cap, we've got a cap. <laughs> I heard a good thing, and I don't think she would mind me sharing it, but I, I won't say, say names or anything, but, but somebody's saying that they've been coming to this church for quite a short while, and, and feeling to begin, to, before they started coming, of wanting to come to church, but feeling somehow that they weren't good enough, because of stuff that had happened, and coming to the church, and then finding everybody loving, and welcoming, and feeling at home, from day one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. A Christ-centered community. That, that's what we should be. Welcoming, loving. Yes, dealing with issues as they arise. Not burying things, but, but for goodness sake, you know. <laughs> Non-judgmental, please. Welcoming. All may come, because that's what Jesus did. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. But it just never ceases to amaze me how people, it seems to me, can have come to church for years and years and years and still sometimes not apply the very basics of their Christian faith that they say every week, in the liturgy of the church, and they can't apply it to simple situations in relationships with other people. What's that about, eh? What's that about? So what does he do? What does he do? I've already said that Sanballat and Co. were easy compared to this. Now he was dealing with the very powerful people the people that held the purse strings and the people that held the power and the people that held influence in the community, he was having to meet with them. By now, Nehemiah has been, become governor. We don't know if that was an elected position, but he is now the governor. So, so he does have his own power base. What does he do? Well, first of all, he thinks. <laughs> is it worth the battle? Verse 7, he ponders in his mind. Very, very sensible. 
He didn't go charging in. You note that at the beginning of Nehemiah. He didn't go charging in with the building project. And we don't know the time scale. We don't know how long this was unfolding. But he ponders in his mind, is it worth the bother? There's an archdeacon who's a friend of mine. He was an archdeacon. He's retired. He said, Ian, I only ever allowed myself to deal with four major issues at the same time. <laughs> because any more I wouldn't be able to cope with. Now, choosing the battles that you fight. Joe Ormston, a great Christian leader uh, at the church where Carol and I met, um, and he said to me, I think I've quoted him before, actually, but when he was a brand-new um, vicar uh, in the days when the, the battles between ev evangelical and Anglo-Catholic were very, very fierce, actually, and there were candles on what he would call the, the Lord's Table, and he said to his church warden, what are they doing there? This was the first Sunday. Uh, why do we have those? And the church warden said, they remind me of the setting sun. And so Joe said, well, in that case, I think we'll take them off. <laughs> and the church warden went to the, the table and he took off the candles and he put them in the vestry and he walked out of the church never to return. And Joe Ormston said to me, Ian, any fool can lose a congregation, but it takes years to build one up. And I thought that was a very interesting advice, and I've never forgotten it. Choose your battles. Candles on the table, not on the candle, on the table, does it matter? Choose your battles. So he ponders, and is it? But it is, we've already said. This is a matter of social justice. This is something that could really tear the community apart. Yes, it is worth the battle. So the second thing, is he blameless? Is his life in order? You know, I almost don't want to preach this section because it's just too challenging to me. <laughs> I don't know about you. It's just too challenging to me. It's, it's cast the first stone stuff. If Nehemiah had gathered his nobles together and said to them, you are extracting too much money, and just one of them could point the finger at him and say, well, look at you then, Nehemiah, and the huge lavish banquets that you and your cronies have. And look at you, Nehemiah, squirreling away money for the future. If one person could have done that, then his moral ground would be gone. And he wouldn't have been able to sort it out. You see, previous governors have lined their pockets. Um, I'm not going to read it all, uh, because you can read it for yourselves, but, you know, he, he, he says... Um, uh, Earlier governors, verse 15, those preceding me placed a heavy burden on the people and took um, 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. He is a person, a man of integrity, who fears God in the true meaning of the word fear. Now, having reverence for God, he didn't take advantage of his position. 
And I think this is a real challenge, certainly to my integrity, but I think it's a challenge to all our integrity. Where do we draw the line between things we do and don't do, things we allow ourselves to do and say here but no further? And we all make mistakes, and I put my hand on my heart to say, yes, I make mistakes. Fortunately, our God is a forgiving God, and we can always get back by kneeling at the foot of the cross of Christ and asking for forgiveness. But, 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 but this is so important <laughs> that we live lives that stand up to scrutiny. And it's not just for leaders, it's for all. Because, you know, if you're leading an immoral lifestyle and you say to somebody, you ought to become a Christian they'll say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Look at the things you are doing. And if it's known that you cheat on the tax man or that you gossip or that you do any other number of things that, that are against, in a sense, ten, the Ten Commandments and, and just the right way of living in the Lord, then people will say, well, you, you, know, you sort your own life out before you try sorting mine out. Thank you very much. But for those who lead, it's... it's even more difficult. That's why it's written in the Bible. Don't many of you become teachers, meaning, you know, teachers in the church, because you will be judged with greater strictness. It's a great package. <laughs> Do you remember that? What's that? It's a duck house. <laughs> How many of you even knew what a duck house was before the M MP's expenses scandal broke? You know, that whole business. Now, nearly all of them have said, and in one sense, they're right to say, well, we just claimed because everybody else was doing it. And, and you can see that, can't you? And people do it with fiddling their taxes and all sorts of other things. Well, everybody does that. It doesn't make it right. Note to self, don't get carried away in <laughs> It doesn't make it right. Now, I know there are gray issues in, in, in Christian behavior, things that the Bible doesn't speak clearly about. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that we are given the Holy Spirit and we're grown-up people and we make our own decisions without churches forever being in judgment and telling people, here's your list of 153 things that you can't do. Because that just becomes legalistic. But the danger with pursuing that policy, and I still think it's a right policy, is that you can push the line too far in some areas. And I've done it. And, and we mustn't do it. Because we know, actually, don't we, if we are close to God, if we are praying and walking with Jesus, and if we're reading our Bibles, and if we're in fellowship with our other brothers and sisters in Christ, then actually we know when something is right to do and when something should not be done. And we know when it's right to say something or not. 
because there's that spiritual check within us that just says, ah, Things are either right or they are wrong. And as Christian people, we do not allow ourselves to be drawn by what the world says is okay. We allow the Holy Spirit of God to tell us what is okay. And our guide is the Scriptures. No matter how difficult they are to interpret with some issues. Of course it's hard. Of course it's hard. And of course we make mistakes. But what we have to remember about sin is that Jesus died because of it. God died. God died. And we have this fairly clear and clean image, don't we, of, of, a, of a bridge illustration that says it's the cross that covers the chasm of sin so that we can go from one side to the kingdom of heaven. But the cross meant this. I haven't seen the passion of Christ. Um, Tim did on Friday and was talking about it and how it left the group and a group of Christians watching it uh, and they sort of needed an hour after to sort of recover really, or, or just a process. The enormity of what my sin cost God. And when we do that, then we don't become so casual in our judgments about what is right and wrong. And that brings us back, perhaps, to a proper reverence for God and a proper fear for God. Back to the cross. And so our society, for young people, says it's all right to, to have sex before marriage. But does it make it right? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, the, the, these are issues that we have to seriously look at. And as older people in the church, we need to make sure we're giving a right lead in many, many issues. And it's hard because society very rapidly is drawing us in a different direction. That's why I'm so pleased there are 90 people reading the Bible in a year in the St. Luke's and St. Mark's churches. And it's hard. Of course it's hard. <laughs> uh, but, but it means that we are having that running water effect through our lives, not necessarily understanding it all, but day by day, washing our lives with the word of God. And, and bits of those truths then begin to seep deeper into our consciousness and our being. And it becomes easier for the Holy Spirit to inform our conscience about what is right and what is wrong. Okay, so he, is, he thinks, he says, is my life in order? And then thirdly, he was angry. It's a great picture, isn't it? 
Where's my milk? <laughs> what sort of time do you call this? Interesting this, isn't it? Because the chapter before, it was Sambalat who was very angry. Do you remember? I had an angry cat as the picture for that one. Uh, Sambalat and, and, and uh, Tobiah, they were very, very angry because the wall was going so well and their livelihoods were being threatened. Now Nehemiah's angry. We said Sambalat was wrong to be angry. Was Nehemiah wrong to be angry? There's a difference, isn't there? Nehemiah, uh, Sambalat was, was angry because he could see his source of income drying up. He was angry for selfish reasons. Nehemiah is angry because of injustice. Jesus in the temple, seeing the money changes, same thing. Righteous indignation. It was a right anger. And that's important as well because he hasn't sort of allowed himself to be so focused on, on the work that's going on for everything else to become an irrelevance. He, he is still, his mind is still keen, but more importantly, his spirit is still sensitive. And he allows himself to become angry when there is injustice, something that is right out of the kingdom of God. He cared about justice. So he was angry. And then fourthly, he dealt with it. In good Church of England fashion, he called a meeting. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> he called a meeting. That's what he says. He says, when I... Um, where are we? Yes. Uh, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them. I love that. I called together a large meeting to deal with them. I guess he wrote the agenda. Uh, and then he speaks to them. So he has all of the people that have been lending their money and, and making all of this interest. He's got all of them there, but he's got everybody else as well, all the representatives. It's a large gathering. And he has a real old go. He has a real old go at them. And basically, he, 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 he just names... You know, it's the elephant in the room thing, isn't it? He names the problem. He says, you have been lending your money at vast rates of interest, and what you are doing is not right. There's none of this, well, I can see that it was very difficult for you. <laughs> and I can understand how you, you, you might have wanted to do it this way. But I think that possibly, you know, maybe, uh, perhaps... I mean, what do you think? Is, 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 is it perhaps a, a wrong thing to do? I mean, it might not be wrong. You, you, you come back. No, none of that rubbish. What you are doing is not right, he says to them, having outlined exactly what they're doing. What you are doing is not right. And then, look at this. What you are doing was not right. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He shut them up because they knew that they were wrong, that what they had been doing was sin, that it was wrong. No going round the houses, he simply deals with it. But all the preparation has been done beforehand. And we know that he would have prayed about this because we know that he is a man of prayer. We've seen that earlier on. And lastly, they get back to work. You know, they get... He, 
this is the vision. This is what they are meant to be doing. Um, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. They, they just get on with things. In other words, he keeps the vision clear. He keeps the vision clear. Because remember, the two things that were being threatened here, our love for one another and the work of the kingdom. So he's putting right the low, you know, they have got to put right what they have done. They give back the money. You can read it for yourself. But, but it's, it's, it's a bit like um, uh, Zacchaeus, you know. Uh, it's a similar sort of story. They give back the money. They give back the money. And then he keeps the vision clear. You're going to get fed up with me putting this up. I don't care. <laughs> this is what we are about in our church community. Nothing must distract us from it. Nothing must distract us from it. And he actually makes them all take oaths. <laughs> and he shakes all his clothes and says, if you break this oath, that's what God's going to do with you. He's going to shake you out. <laughs> because it needed sorting out, and he sorted it out. But in love. And in justice and in fairness. Because, of course, God is a, a, a God of perfect love and perfect justice. You can't have one without the other. So, the issues. Dissension. Integrity. Something to sort out. Is there anything in any of that that the Holy Spirit is challenging you about tonight? Is there something of dissent that's going on somewhere that you are part of? Get before the cross and then see the proportion of how important it is or the perspective. Is there an issue of integrity in your life? Something that's got to be put right? Something where you've allowed the line to go just a bit too far and you are no longer doing what is right? Or is there something that needs sorting out? Because if there is, do it. <laughs> because all of these things spoil the work of God. They spoil the work of God. And nothing must do that. There's a, a, a waiting world out there that, that needs to know something of the love of God and how they can possibly live lives that are beautiful for God. But if they don't see it in the church, what hope is there for the world? Will you please stand? If we could have some quiet uh, worship music as we begin to ponder this, that would be great. Because you may be challenged in one of these areas and you may have therefore some business to do with God to get it sorted out. And part of that may be that you need to go and get prayer and there'll be opportunity for that in a moment at the back of the church. But equally there may be other things and we'll listen now to uh, the things that Deeper have been praying over.
Um, first of all, we had words. St. Mark's is bathed in the blood of Christ. And also the people in the service need to be bathed in the Holy Spirit and come forward for prayer. Then somebody had a pain in an el- in the elbow, which is affecting the whole arm. And it's in the left arm. And then a picture of a field, lush green grass, contrasted to ordinary grass. It was fed by a clear stream of very clean water, nourishing the grass but not making the ground wet around it. And the word solid foundation, there were insects buzzing, echoing the words trust. And they were going about busily at their work. Then we had a picture of, two pictures actually, of brilliant white light. And the second picture was bright and it was through an archway. And then a picture of a man or a woman carrying really heavy bags. Um, one was under the arm, one was on the shoulder and one in the other arm. And he was walking along a road and then a cross appeared in front. And then he walks to the cross and leaves them there and moves around the cross and carries on forward. Um, We feel this was burdens or sin that somebody needs to leave at the foot of the cross. And then a feeling of really hot hands and swollen fingers. Okay, so if you need prayer, please come for prayer. And our prayer ministers will pray for anything that's on your mind or will pray for healing. Um, or we'll pray for anybody else. If you've got somebody on your heart that you want others to pray about, uh, don't waste the opportunity. But before we start moving for, for that, that prayer, I would like you to imagine yourself before the cross. Because I feel this quite keenly in my spirit. That, that there are some here who need to put something right. And I don't want to be ladling guilt on people. I've never believed in that. Uh, but I'm sharing this because if that is the situation, if there is some matter of integrity that's gone slightly wrong, then it's spoiling your life. It's not just spoiling the community and, and the kingdom of God. It's actually meaning that you're living a life less then God wants you to. And always, always, always we have the opportunity to come to the cross and just ask for forgiveness and to sort of reset that moral compass if that's what needs to happen. Because we have a great God who loves us. So do take that opportunity if that's you. And if there's something specific to sort out, well, you might need some prayer to help you with that. Remember, Everything that's shared in prayer is absolutely and totally confidential to the prayer ministers and yourselves. So if any of that has spoken to you or any of the pictures that were shared or the words that were shared, then make sure that you use the opportunity now. Can I ask the prayer ministers to go towards the back of the church? And you just follow them down for prayer. Equally, if you want to use this time to spend time with God, 
then do that. And we will just carry on praying for people for as long as we need to. If you need to go, then that's fine.